This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Ryan's Thompson Fund, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today we're starting a new series on parenting kids on the autism spectrum. There's no better person to kick this series off than Temple Grandin, perhaps the single person in our country who has done the most to help us understand life through the eyes of someone with autism. In this series, we're hoping to highlight both what a parent can do best to help their child, but also to name and explore the inside experience of what it's like for the parent and how difficult this can be to talk about. But today, to start out, Temple has agreed to give us her insider's view of the experience of living with autism. Temple Grandin is a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She's the author or the editor of 13 books about either living with autism or animal behavior and handling. Over half of the cattle in the United States are handled in a restraining system that she designed for meatpacking plants. But even more importantly for our purposes, she travels all over the world speaking about the best ways to support the development of autistic kids and young adults. Welcome to Safe Space Radio Temple. I want to start by asking you to take me into the world of living with autism, like especially to tell me about sensory difficulties. What is it like to live with the kind of sensory sensitivity that you write about? Sensory problems can vary from being uh, just a nuisance to being very, very, very debilitating. And when I was a young child, I was terrified of sudden loud noises. And when, when there was a sudden loud noise, it caused an extreme startle response. I can remember going on a ferry boat that had a big foghorn, and I'd be sitting up on the deck, and that foghorn would blow, and I would just fling myself on the floor screaming and kicking. It hurt my ears. It was like a dentist drill hitting a nerve. There's been some scientific research now that shows that um, these sounds that bother the kid uh, set off the fear center in the brain. You know, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala. And uh, it's going to be very variable from child to child. My problems with touch sensitivity and loud noises. Another child may have visual problems. Uh, other problems is not hearing hard, constant sounds. When I was a very young child and the grown-ups were yakking really fast, I thought it was a foreign language. It was sort of like, oing, 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 And the problem was I was not hearing the hard consonant sounds. So when my speech teacher talked to me, she would slow down and she'd enunciate the hard consonants. Like, for example, in speech class, she'd hold up a cup and she'd say, cup. And then she'd say, cup, where she'd stretch out and enunciate those hard consonants so I could hear them. You know, you need to slow down. Uh, talking to some of these kids so their brain can hear the auditory detail. I, I got better and better at hearing it. You know, it definitely got better. You know, and this is one of the reasons why it's so important to work with kids very, very early on. And, and we need to try to work as much as we can on desensitizing some of the problems. Now, there's no way I'm going to tolerate, um, you know, wearing wool clothes against my skin. And I've gotten now where I can tolerate those really loud hand dryers in the bathroom uh, I can tolerate those. Now, where I'd have a problem with something like that would be if my office cubicle was located right next to one of those really loud hand dryers, I wouldn't be able to get any work done. And when you said before, you said that loud noises set off the fear response. For you, if you had your office right beside a hand dryer, 
would the experience be one of constant anxiety or would it be one of just total distraction? Well, it just, it's a more like startle response over and over again. I can't screen it out. Now, I can go in the airport and just a normal talking, I can sit and read a book and totally screen out the airport. In fact, I have to be careful not to miss a flight doing that, and that's why I like to sit where I can see the door and see the people line up for the door. Well, it sounds like that was sort of like an adaptive strategy. So for you to cope with the degree of sensitivity you have, you've learned how to kind of just shut it all out. Well, is that basically, right? basically the way my hearing worked is it's like a microphone that's only got two settings, off and super loud, mm. no volume control. If I turn it on, it's super loud, or I can just turn it off. Because when I was young, a lot of times people would say I acted like I was deaf. Well, you see, you get a child that goes into sensory shutdown, and they're doing it because they're just overloaded. And that's why they've shut down, you know, and just block out all the, all the stimulation. Right. So I want to hear more, too, from you about touch sensitivity, because you mentioned wool clothes being very uncomfortable. What? Tell me a little bit about the kinds of touch you don't like and the kind of touch that does work for you. Light tickle touch set off kind of an alarm response. I tend to have an exaggerated startle response, and deep pressure's calming. When I was a real little kid, I wanted to feel the nice feeling of being held, but it was just too overwhelming. And and um, I I worked on desensitizing this, you know, using my squeezing machine. You see, in that situation, I could control a squeezing machine. And why don't you describe what what your squeeze machine is? Well, a squeeze machine idea came from a cattle squeeze chute, which is a device to hold the cattle still for veterinary work. They walk into a stall, and the sides of the stall um, squeeze them. And uh, I noticed that some cattle, not all cattle, but some cattle would kind of just relax. So I went and tried out the cattle squeeze chute, and I found the pressure did calm me down. So I built a cattle squeeze chute-like thing that I could get into that would apply um, pressure on my body, and it helped calm me down. You know, some individuals find, you know, deep pressure over large portions of the body to be very, very calming. Others don't. I want to emphasize on all of these sensory issues how variable they are. They vary from a nuisance to being almost totally debilitating. One kid will have visual problems. Another kid will not have visual problems. It's very variable. But I would not be able to wear wool against my skin. Even today, I've got to have soft things against my skin the scratchiness. There's just no way I can adapt to that because I got to have that on all day. And then then all I'm doing is thinking about it being scratchy and itchy and I'm not thinking about, you know, what I'm supposed to be paying attention to a lecture or, you know, getting my work done. If you now do you have your squeeze machine with you now where you live? Well, it broke about five years ago and I never got around to fixing it. You know, maybe it got to the point in my life I just didn't need it so much. But I wanna emphasize to help sometimes desensitize some of these things You've got to let the child initiate it. Uh, like, for example, another really bad sound, sound is when microphones feed back and they screech. You know, you take the handheld mic, walk too close to the speaker, and then it feeds back. So one of the ways you might help a kid to desensitize that would be to give them the mic and say, okay, you walk up to the speaker, and just when it goes, eh, you can back off. In other words, they are controlling, you know, how much of that sound, you know, they, they're going to have to listen to. Because what you don't want to do is have a kid that just wears earphones all the time, and he just gets more and more and more sound sensitive. If you're using earplugs or a headset, you need to have it off for at least half the day when you're in a quiet environment. And we need to be working on encouraging the kids to tolerate some noise. Because when I was really little, if we went to a big noisy shopping place or something like that, I'd get upset. Well, I've got now where I tolerate that just fine. 
there is some ability to adapt to some of these things. I talked to a mom where her daughter didn't want to wear her shoes. So I suggested she try uh, an old trick that the OTs do. I said, massage her foot, rub it with a towel, and then she may wear her shoes. And it turned out that that actually worked, you know, by putting deep pressure on the um, person beforehand. I want to talk about the connection between the kind of sensory sensitivity you're describing and anxiety, because I I have to tell you, in my training as a psychiatrist, I really did not learn about how prevalent anxiety is in people with autism. And reading your work, I was so struck to learn from you that about 50% of people with autism suffer from panic. And just describing, you know, and that their amygdala, the kind of center of anxiety in the brain, is often enlarged. And you describe this kind of intense startle response. I'm I'm curious, did you experience anxiety kind of from a very young age, or did no, it get worse? No. Now, when I was a child, I was not anxious. All of this happened at puberty. When the hormones hit at puberty, I started having constant panic attacks. It was sort of like, um, imagine, uh, I, this is what I tell people at the conferences. I'll say, well, let's just imagine we shut the door of this conference room, we shut all the doors, we turn off the lights, and I dump into this room about 50 deadly poisonous snakes. <sighs> Okay, now just imagine how vigilant your nervous system is going to be if I did that. That's the way I used to feel all the time. And ever since my early 30s, that's now been controlled with antidepressant drugs. I also want to emphasize that the brain scan finding of the enlarged amygdala, in other words, my fear center is bigger than normal, not everybody has that. But there is a high percentage of people with autism where anxiety and panic attacks is a major problem. And one of the things I was not allowed to do as a child when I was a teenager was become a recluse in my room. I'm seeing too many kids, you know, teenage boys in particular, you know, staying in the room for eight hours a day playing video games, and they're not doing anything else. And my um, mother and the people at school know being a recluse in my room. I had to come to meals. I had to do activities with the family. I could not be staying in my room all day. And when I was in the boarding school, when I didn't want to go to the Friday night movie night because I was nervous, they gave me a choice. I could be the projectionist or I could be in the audience. Not going was not going to be the choice. And do you think that that tendency to be, want to become a recluse, do you think that that's driven by anxiety? I think anxiety is one of the drivers for that, definitely. Because now there were no video games when I was a teenager. But I found if I just got in my room and I laid on the bed and I just read a book, that tended to calm down my anxiety. So I just wanted to sit there and read a book. Part of what really struck me in reading Thinking in Pictures was you describing that cows are prey animals and that part of why you sensed that you could understand them so well is that you felt like in some ways the nervous system of someone with autism can be almost wired as if like a prey animal, kind of like with all those poisonous snakes, sort of always scanning for danger and for well, threat. that's a prey animal. You see cattle and other horses, other prey animals, their visual system is set up so that while they're grazing, they can constantly scan their environment for danger. You know, I talked to a lady the other day that was out riding, and she made the mistake of putting ice cubes in her water bottle. And while she was riding, she took a drink out of her water bottle, and the ice cubes rattled, and her horse freaked out and took off because that was a totally novel, sudden sound he'd never heard before. And do you relate to that? Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, you know, sometimes um, I still have a problem 
with people's voices at night. Like if I'm in a hotel room and people are walking down the hallway talking. Now, I know those people aren't going to do anything to me. Or maybe somebody's out in the parking lot and they're talking. You know, and they're just talking. I can't shut that out. I can shut out airplanes flying over the hotel, the train going by, the traffic noise. I can screen that out. But I can't screen out people's voices. Now, the drugs have controlled the big fear response. I no longer get the big fear response. But they don't control the orienting response. And when I'm in a hotel and I hear somebody talking in the parking lot, my brain just instantly orients, and I can't sleep through that. A plane can just about land on the hotel, and I can sleep right through that. (laughs) Right. Temple, I want to talk to you now about kids that really aren't very verbal, you know, that really have a hard time talking at all, and about how a parent can really learn a child's signals for what it is that they're needing. And are, are there... Are there principles that can guide a parent? Well, first thing I'd recommend, if you're working with an older child that's nonverbal, there's three books you want to read that describe a sensory world of somebody that's nonverbal. The the extreme effort required to screen out that background noise so they could even think. And there are three books written by people that can type independently. They've been verified to type absolutely independently. And they're Tito Muckapadahe's How Can I Talk? If my lips don't move. The second book is Carly's Voice, and that's Carly with a C as in Charlie. And then there's the new book, um, The Reason I Jump, and it's by a Japanese boy. And he describes that when his body is in motion, he's able to tell where his body's located in space. If he's not moving, he can't even tell where his body is located in space. And Tito describes things such as he sees a door, and he might see the color of the door, before he sees the shape of the door. It's a sensory, visually fragmented world. And a lot of nonverbal individuals will smell things and touch things. And the reason why they do that is those senses actually still work. Those senses give the person uh, real information that's not all distorted and fragmented. And so for the kids that aren't verbal, it, does it tend to be that their hearing is so jumbled and mixed that they really can't hear other sounds? Yeah, seeing and hearing tends to be tends to be jumbled. And there's some individuals that can't learn to talk that can learn to type. And oftentimes something like an iPad works well because when you type on an iPad, the print appears right next to the keyboard. Where if you type on a laptop, the print appears at the top of the screen. If somebody that's nonverbal can't make that attention shift. And that's why the iPad or some other tablet will work. Oh, I see. And a laptop or a desktop does not work. And uh, you read those books. That's going to really give you insight into how somebody that's severely nonverbal is experiencing the sensory world. Part of what you said, something that really got my attention about the first book, you said somebody where the noise is so, they have to screen the noise out to even be able to think. Ed Carly describes this, too. Is, is it takes extreme attention to screen out all the extraneous noise. And Carly has a very good description of being in a restaurant, and she's trying to listen to a friend of hers talk. And there's a lot of activity around, the coffee pot noises, dishes clattering, doors opening and closing, and all of these things are intruding. And she's able to screen it out. And then a lady walks by that's got really strong perfume, and then that added force stimulus is just too much. She just shut down. Mm. You know, she, she could no longer pay attention to her friend talking. 
I, I can imagine the challenge for a parent temple is is understanding that that's what's going on. Like what they see is this kid shutting down. They don't realize the perfume just was the last straw. Well, I would recommend that they, you see, in the Autistic Brain book, in the sensory chapter, Richard Panic and I discuss how they, um, uh, you know, that the shutdown is actually sensory overload. So you can read the Autistic Brain to get a lot of the scientific stuff. And I think that anyone who has a child over age six that's not talking definitely needs to be reading these other books. I want to ask you now, Temple, a little bit more about relationships because the the parents, um, you know, who love this child and are wanting to help and wanting to read these books you're recommending are trying to sort out how to help their child function in, the, in a world of relationships. And I'm, one of the things that I was just fascinated by in reading Thinking in Pictures was the way you describe that you have kind of developed a series of, of rules, of social rules for how to interact with people in different situations. And you tell the story about how you, how you had to learn to deal with coworkers' jealousy. Well, and how you, had this... you can't be telling people they're stupid even if they are. That's rule number one. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what are some of the other rules that you have learned about? Uh, because I think sometimes people without autism might, might also benefit because you've studied it so rationally. We well, also need to learn that you can't monopolize the conversation. So I have another rule. Okay, I've got my favorite things I like to talk about. Well, you can only tell that story twice. You've got to give other people a chance to talk about the things that they're interested in talking about. You get on the verbal end of the spectrum. The one thing that probably really is the core symptom is the um, problems with social communication. You know, and the problems with face recognition, problems with uh, picking up social cues. I've got to learn them the same way you teach somebody social rules in a foreign country. Like, for example, uh, somebody um, in, that comes here from another culture wouldn't know that maybe just lifting up and showing the middle finger is a really rude gesture. Or I go to the Middle East, and, and over there, if you pick up your foot and show the bottom of your shoe to somebody, that's, like, really super rude. Now, I have no way of knowing that unless somebody told me. Let's just look at shaking hands. You have to demonstrate the correct distance. You demonstrate the amount of pressure, how many times you shake it. And when you say social cues, can you give me an example? What do you mean well, by not reading? Well, I didn't know until I was 50 years old that people have these little eye signals. Like somebody rolls their eyes, that means they're kind of getting annoyed with you. I didn't know about that until I read about it in a book and I was 50. I want to ask you about the question about love. Um, because there's Well, I like the way my mother defines love. Oh, how does she define and it? She defined it to me, it's making something grow. Like, for example, if you're growing a plant, you've got to be really careful with a little seedling and and put it in just the right kind of pot, water it just right, because if you're not careful with it, it's not going to grow. So do you, you know, feel I like, heard, you know, I would understand that best in terms of her loving you and yeah. wanting to foster your growth. Do you feel like you're trying to make something grow with her? Well, yeah, and, uh, and I, I uh, actually I find this stuff rather boring to talk about. <laughs> I'm all about, you know, I want a kid to be successful. You know, when I find out there's a 17-year-old that's spending all day playing video games, I'm going, well, that kid's life is just going to be terrible. You know, it's just going to end up with Social Security. This is ridiculous. You know, I'd like to see that kid go out and be successful and get a job in Silicon Valley. You know, and I go out and I do a talk to the tech community, and I see the same geeks and nerds out there where their parents taught them programming when they were eight. Now they're running, you know, big, important um, companies. And then I come back and I see a similar little geeky, nerdy kid 
where he's sitting in his room playing video games all day and hasn't learned any work skills. You know, my got social relationships through work. Like when I was in high school, I was bullied and teased and bullied and teased. The only places I was not bullied and teased was specialized interest areas. And And in my high school, it was model rockets, horseback riding, and then running the horse barn and um, electronics. And in within the kind of kids that were interested in those activities were not doing the teasing. What do you think was the protective factor with the bullying and teasing? Was it because they respected you because they could see your skill, or was it just that well, they... Well, yes, yes. You see, on the shared interests, you know, I, I also found professionally, I remember going to agricultural engineering meetings when I was very, very young, and they thought I was really weird and they didn't want to talk to me, and then I'd whip out and show them my drawings. Then I got some respect. You know, they go, oh, well, you did that. Oh, wow, maybe you are worth talking to. You know, I had to learn to sell my work rather than myself. Yes. So I want to come back to this this hypothetical teenager recluse in their room playing video games all the time. Yes, I think that drag them out. Okay, yeah, so... One of the things you wrote about, which I I found very powerful, was the importance of using a child's fixations, like using their kind of consuming interests to motivate them, to kind of take them into more things. And if you had a kid... What you want to do is broaden fixations. Like when I was a young child, all I did was draw horse heads all the time. And I was encouraged to draw something else. Or let's say all the kid does is draw airplanes. Well, draw the airport. Draw a place a plane flies to. In other words, make an associative link back to... um, to the airplane. Is there a way to do that with, a, with an obsessive interest in video games? How would you well, broaden it, that? Now, some of these kids be smart enough to program video games. And, but the other thing we've got to do with these kids, they've got to learn work skills. And that needs to start at age 12. And what work skills do you mean? What do you mean by work skills? Well, have a job. Like, you know, in my generation, it used to be paper routes. Well, at, at age 12. Well, we don't have paper routes anymore. We'll set it up so he walks dogs for the next-door neighbors. They need to start getting a job outside the home. But I'm seeing too many kids graduate from college, and they haven't learned work skills like you got to do what the boss tells you, and you got to get up in the morning, and you got to be there. Right. Really basic things in some ways. Basic stuff. I'm seeing way too many kids come up to me at a conference, and they've never been taught to shake hands. And I'm talking about fully verbal kids. And the mom's doing all the talking, and they haven't learned basic skills. Yes. Going in a shop and, and buying something and talking to the clerk. Right, engaging, engaging with the outside world. Well, yeah, they've got to engage. So, Temple, you know, what I'm struck by hearing this is, as a parent, these what that means, if you're going to take that on, is it means you have to be willing to have struggle. Like it's You it's, are going to have to struggle. You do have to pick your battles. But um, you give them some choices. You know, like, okay, you want the kid dressed up in the Sunday best, for being party host or party hostess, well, you give them a choice. You can wear, you know, your your blue blue suit jacket or your gray suit jacket. You know, you can give them some choice. Right. You. That seems to be a really important theme: the importance of the child having some control. Yeah, there's some choice. Well, the child has got, you know, some control. Yes. On and give them a choice. Like when I was 15, and I didn't want to go to my aunt's ranch. Mother gave me a choice. What was want to go? I could I could go out for a week, and if I hated it, then I could come back. Or I, or I could stay all summer. I had a choice. Not going was not going to be one of the choices. And I got out there and I loved it. But I'm seeing so many kids so overprotected. They don't know how to do anything. See, this is what makes me crazy. Is I go out and I visit Google or I visit some other um, Silicon Valley company, 
and I see the, you know, I see a guy that's you know, maybe 25, never been diagnosed with autism, and um, he's got a great job at the Googleplex, and I come back and see a 12-year-old that looks the same, same kind of guy, never been taught how to shake hands. And when you say it makes you crazy, I mean, the sense I get is that you... It makes me crazy because they're not going to be successful. Yeah. And I think the guy that works at Google is a much happier guy than the guy that's playing video games all day and maybe does a few griping and bitching on the Internet. So in other words, what I'm hearing you say to parents in some ways is it's worth the struggle. Take it on. Well, you have to pick your battles. The other thing I want to emphasize, no sudden surprises. You've got to stretch these kids. I want to emphasize stretching. And you have to stretch just outside the comfort zone. And my mother had a really, really good sense on just how much to, str- to stretch me. So if I was to take, you know, if I was to distill what I've read from you and what I've been learning from you today, I'm trying to kind of put together a sort of Temple Grandin's rules for parents, as it were. And and here's what I'm getting so far. I'm getting the importance of stretching gradually, the importance of giving choice, the importance of engaging with the outside world. Another thing is is get them involved with uh, peers in shared interest activities, such as, you know, it could be many things, robotics, uh, playing in the band, being in the school play, doing a metalworking shop. And I think one of the worst things that schools have done is taking out all the hands-on classes. Absolutely the worst. Because right. I'm going to estimate on the fully verbal end of the spectrum, about 20 to 25 percent, a skilled trade would be perfect. But how can a child find out if he likes engines if he's not exposed to working on an engine? Right. How could you find out you like a musical instrument if you never played one? Are there other things that you that you would really, you know, if you had a few minutes with a parent and you were trying to distill down kind of all the treasures well, that you've learned? First of all, I have to know the age of the child. Because if the child's three and he's not talking, I'm going to say early intervention, I'm going to, I tell them basically all the same thing. Nothing's the worst thing you can do. Now we get a kid that's older, first of all, I've got to look at level of functioning. What is he capable of doing? I mean, somebody that can't read at all is probably not going to be, be a car mechanic. You know, you have to get, I have to ask quite a few questions. Um, and I find that when people are troubleshooting, they don't get enough information. That that seems to be something that's been so important that you've done. You assume meaning that that what I've learned is that when you went into, say, a cattle facility, you assumed that the cattle were balking, were panicking because of a reason, and you sought to find it and change it as opposed to well, just... Well, I found that you take the hose, get the hose off the floor, get the coat that's hanging on the fence off the fence, it sometimes makes a big difference. I think I was always assuming, and this is revealing my real ignorance here, I think I was assuming that in the huge spectrum of autism that there are some kids... And I think it was assuming it was the nonverbal kind of lower functioning kids that actually had what what we used to call mental retardation. That sort of like there was going to be a low IQ that was never really well, going to be. Well, there's some of the some of the nonverbal kids that have a locked in syndrome. They got they got a normal mind trapped inside. Well, that's you know, what I started to wonder. Things. Is it really that, or is it more that the sensory difficulties? Well, those kids uh, they have a total sensory problem. Like a Japanese kid can't tell where his body boundary is unless he moves. Carly describes uh, not being able to shut out the bombardment of sensory information. Tito can only answer three questions before he has to have a rest. Then you've got a lot of kids in the more medium level that are going to have to have sensory breaks to calm down. I was allowed to have an hour after lunch where I could stim, and then it wasn't allowed at the dining room table. But some kids are going to need some breaks 
where they could do some stimming to calm down. What does that mean to stim? Well, rocking or spinning something or, or uh, you know, one of some of those repetitive behaviors. And, and the, um, the, the boy in the Reason I Jump book describes how it's absolute bliss to do spinning. But the problem is if they do it all day, they're not going to develop because they shut the world out. Is it possible that kids on the autism spectrum, there actually isn't an intellectual disability, but it really is the there sensory problem? that are nonverbal, and they've got a normal mind. But on the other hand, there probably are other, other very, very uh, severe cases of autism where there is an intellectual disability. And I've also seen cases where I don't think autism is even the correct primary diagnosis. And people are getting an autism diagnosis to get services because the kid did have some autistic features. So, Temple, we are going to have to stop today. And I want to just tell you and, and say goodbye that I, everyone that I've told that I was going to get to interview you today has just turned to me and just said, she is one of my heroes. In fact, I got an email at midnight last night from, from a mom with someone with autism who just said she is my hero, not only for her work with autism, but also for her work to institute more humane practices with animals. And I, I want to just tell you, it's been such an honor to talk to you, and I thank you so much thank for the work that much. you're doing. I've been speaking with Temple Grandin, professor of animal science at Colorado State University, author of many books. The two I'm going to most encourage you to read are Thinking in Pictures, My Life with Autism, and her more recent book, The Autistic Brain. If you did not get a chance to listen to this whole show and you would like to, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. While on the site, you can listen to any of our other 200 shows. You can subscribe to get a weekly email with that week's show. You can share the show on Facebook or send the link to a friend. You can also download the show from iTunes and like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Maurice Lennon for the intro music, and Jim Russell for being our consultant. Coming up next is Speak Freely.